This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. A team of leading academics, including neurologists, psychiatrists, anthropologists, psychologists, moral philosophers, and epidemiologists, recently produced a paper entitled The New Science of Practical Wisdom with the aim of introducing the science of wisdom research to the broader academic community. My name is Charles Cassidy. I run a project called Evidence-Based Wisdom, and I was lucky enough to be asked to be involved. This animation gives an overview of what was covered in the paper, just with fewer words and more pictures. So, let's begin. Consider for a moment, are the smartest people you know also the wisest? Not necessarily. While traditional intellectual reasoning has brought us a long way, there is a growing scientific understanding that perhaps being smart is only part of the picture, especially when it comes to navigating the uncertainties and challenges of the modern world. Here's paper lead author and senior associate dean for healthy aging and professor of psychiatry and neurosciences at the University of California, San Diego, Dilip Jesti. If you look at the number of papers published on the topic of wisdom per decade since the 1970s, we see incredible growth in the amount of new work in this area. Like other constructs, which were once considered too fuzzy for serious biological science, such as the study of emotions or consciousness, wisdom is fast emerging as a subject of rigorous academic research across a whole range of disciplines. Another of the paper's authors, Professor of Psychology Howard Nussbaum, Director of University of Chicago's Center for Practical Wisdom, frames it like this. I think there's been a change in the public perception of the qualities that are important in a number of domains of human life. People have moved from thinking about intelligence, being smart, being clever, which I think was a hallmark of the Clinton and Bush eras, into the Obama era where the discourse about empathy in the judiciary became part of the national discourse and that has moved us to talking about wisdom. Humans have been driven to bottle and pass on wisdom since the earliest civilizations emerged. Texts from early Hindu, Greek and Christian cultures indicate that wisdom was a highly prized construct. Wisdom entered the laboratory for the first time in the 1970s when the early empirical research began. And since then, wisdom has been making the journey from vague abstraction to an empirically grounded concept of human ability. A number of factors seem to be driving this process. Populations are aging. We have a greater range of life options open to us. And of course, we have more sophisticated psychological, behavioral and neurobiological measurement tools at our disposal. A robust scientific study of wisdom is beginning to take shape. Here's epidemiologist and professor of psychiatry, Dan Blazer another of the paper's authors. With tools coming online, they potentially can help us to explore the areas. I think we're in a much better position. Uh, there is a move among scientists to not be quite as reductionistic, that maybe that puts people too much in silos. And so I think people are recognizing that the pendulum needs to be swinging back to where disciplines are speaking to one another, and wisdom actually turns out to be one of those areas. So, first off, how do we define wisdom? One essential distinction to make up front is between theoretical wisdom and practical wisdom. While theoretical wisdom pertains to more abstract ideas about the nature of reality and the role of humanity, scientists' empirical efforts are principally on practical wisdom, which is more akin to making good decisions in our daily lives. But even in this more grounded sense, practical wisdom has been defined many different ways in the scientific research community. Nonetheless, there is a shorter list of components frequently shared by many of these definitions, and this paper proposes that wisdom is a trait that includes social decision-making, emotional regulation, 
pro-social behavior that is guided by capacities such as empathy and compassion, self-reflection, acceptance of uncertainty, decisiveness, and spirituality. So how is wisdom measured? Wisdom is in fact measured frequently in much the same way as other psychological constructs, through self-report questionnaires. While popular, these do have limitations, since subjects often consciously or unconsciously fail to present the most accurate assessment of their own abilities. Nonetheless, they continue to be a valuable tool in the field. Three self-report scales currently used in empirical research are the three-dimensional wisdom scale developed by Monica Ardelt, which frames wisdom as consisting of cognitive, reflective and effective dimensions. The self-assessed wisdom scale developed by Jeffrey Dean Webster, which proposes five dimensions of wisdom. And the San Diego Wisdom Scale, covering six components of wisdom, which intriguingly share a common neurocircuitry, potentially hinting at a neurological map of wise reasoning in the brain. Beyond traditional self-report scales, performance-based measures such as the Berlin Wisdom Paradigm have been widely employed in the field. More recently, Brienza and Grossman's Situated Wise Reasoning Scale has been developed to help bridge the gap between the abstract, decontextualized nature of traditional self-report measures and the more concrete, contextualized nature of performance-based measures by employing self-reports about concrete situations people have faced in their own lives. Researchers increasingly use a combination of different measures to improve reliability. Ideally, to really assess a subject's level of wisdom, they may need to be continuously monitored for weeks. Computer-based analysis of such data may well then be able to more reliably identify patterns of wise and unwise behavior. However, the ethics of such a practice suggest that this is still some way off. In recent years, scientists studying wisdom have begun to focus on the biological processes that underpin this psychological capacity. Researchers are now asking, what is happening in the brain when we make wise decisions? In attempting to chart a neurological map for wisdom, researchers focus not on exceptionally wise brains, rather they study brains which are no longer capable of what we recognize as wise behavior, such as those belonging to patients with the brain disease frontotemporal dementia. Here's another of the paper's co-authors, behavioral neurologist Bruce Miller. Frontotemporal dementia is a degenerative disease that hits uh, circuits in the brain that we've learned are critical for um, making pro-social uh, decisions, for making good decisions, for caring about others, for helping others. And so we uh, see systematic loss of this uh, set of abilities in people with frontotemporal dementia. This is telling us that there is a circuitry in the brain that is involved with wisdom, compassion, uh, caring about others, and, and even making good decisions uh, about ourselves. Scientists also study key experiments of nature, in which injuries to certain brain regions also lead to a loss of wise behavior. The most famous of these is the case of Phineas Gage, in which an accident at work resulted in iron rods damaging Gage's frontal lobes. He was transformed from a considerate and dependable man into an antisocial and volatile character. Dilip Jesti's team at UC San Diego have integrated research into such degenerative diseases and case studies with an extensive review of the neuroscientific literature relevant to wisdom-related processes to propose a possible model for the neurobiology of wisdom. Here's Dilip Jesti again. Obviously, charting a neurological map for a behavior as complex as wisdom is a considerable challenge and any model is necessarily oversimplified. Our putative model proposes that wisdom-like behaviors emerge from a balance between more ancient and more recent regions of the brain. The more ancient region of the brain is the limbic cortex, specifically the amygdala, which is associated with strong emotions. 
the more recent regions of the brain include the prefrontal cortex in particular the ventromedial prefrontal cortex which is associated with emotional regulation and compassion the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex which is associated with utilitarian choices and the anterior cingulate cortex which is associated with detecting conflicts between those two parts of the prefrontal cortex in this simplified model of the wise brain wise behavior is achieved through the balance between these regions to find the optimal solution to meet our needs and the needs of our society a further question that scientists have raised asks if wisdom is exclusively a human attribute considering the brain of homo sapiens the wise man has evolved from the brain of our ape ancestors might these apes also share our capacity for wisdom The tools of evolutionary neuroscience enable us to chart the evolution of regions of the brain such as the frontolimbic circuitry which are associated with wise behaviors like planning and judgment. How much of these changed since we parted ways from the last common ancestor we share with the great apes? His paper co-author, professor of evolutionary anthropology and neuroscience, Caterina Semendeferi what seems to be standing out in, in the human brain in terms of its anatomy are uh, if you think so far one of the fundamental things is that because development is so protracted in humans and it takes so much longer for the brain to develop some changes in the way the building blocks of the brain the cells undergo are protracted and they end up in in larger structures that we assume then make some difference in terms of function we don't know that for sure but we make the assumption so part of the frontal lobe and some neurons in the frontal cortex seem to take much longer to develop and again some parts not the whole but some parts end up being larger in human adults when compared to adult apes. The frontal cortex is very important for a lot of cognitive functions, so we assume that those changes have some meaning in terms of unique complexity in in our mind. And another dimension of uh, what is different is the realization that structures and systems like the limbic system that we used to think of as very primitive or not changed much, but actually selectively uh, has undergone changes in the human brain after the last common ancestor with the chimpanzees. And again, that whole system may be relevant to wisdom, people would argue. So then we may have some evidence uh, assuming that that translates into function that there is something there that's specifically um, different in humans. The many similarities in brain biology suggest that apes may be capable of demonstrating some level of wisdom. The critical differences, however, indicate that our human capacity for wisdom has evolved beyond the abilities of our ape ancestors and living ape cousins. In light of such research, perhaps the label Homo sapiens, wise man, should be updated to the more prudent Homo sapientior, the wiser man. Researchers have also recently started to explore the role of human genes in the transfer of wisdom across generations. Genetic science suggests that genes are selected for primarily on the basis of the benefit they bring prior to reproduction. Genes for helping us in old age shouldn't make it into the human genome. Yet the recent discovery of grandparent genes challenges this idea. These genes essentially protect the aging human body and brain, and their discovery suggests that the period of old age is somehow beneficial to our survival as a group. His paper co-author Pascal Gagneur, who works in University of California San Diego's Department of Pathology and Anthropology. Grandparent genes are kind of a provocative attempt to name genetic variants that we came across that are associated with protection from Alzheimer's disease, 
which is very odd because in the dogma in evolutionary biology is that natural selection comes to a grinding halt around the time that we cease reproduction, which in human, for females, is you know, 30 years before you die or even more. So the notion that there could be something uniquely human, derived genetic variants only seen in humans when compared to hundreds of great ape genomes, and those are associated with protection of cognition, made us curious as to the possibility that in humans who have important transmission of culture via language, instruction, storytelling and so forth, there might actually be a late phase in life where selection is possible by a kin selection where non-reproductive females or males, grandmas and grandpas, by still being cognitively together, convey really important knowledge and cultural constructs to their younger kin that may be carrying the same genetic variants at then increase in frequency. As Gagneur describes, the role of language is incredibly important here, enabling older adults to effectively pass on their hard-earned knowledge to their inexperienced grandchildren and other younger kin. But in our case, we can tell stories, we can relate concepts, we can time travel together with the younger kin and teach them really important lessons about how they ought to behave, what they should avoid, where to go in, in uh, times of crisis or famine and things like that. And so language just potentiates the value of transmission and opens up new possibilities. So language as a new transmission mode and late age, no more reproduction for females, no more risky reproduction, that together opens up this window to uh, selection in late in life. That would be a, a peculiar situation in our species. Indeed, it seems that the human genome appears to have baked in a mechanism for the intergenerational transfer of wisdom. In fact, the well-documented grandmother hypothesis suggests that when grandparents help in raising offspring, fertility increases, resulting in larger populations. Paper co-author and paleoanthropologist Rachel Kaspari suggests that population resilience may be an important factor in the emergence of cultural traditions and collective wisdom. Specifically, her research suggests that populations with a higher rate of old to young people in fact survive for more generations prior to collapse. So if you have a population like Neanderthal populations where there were very few older adults because there was so much mortality, they had to sustain a very high fertility rate, and if that wasn't sustained, the population would come to an end. So once you have upper Paleolithic populations that are living longer, the populations become more resilient, allowing cultural traditions to be passed on for a much longer period of time. One of the things that we now know is that Neanderthals and the Middle Stone Age people in Africa occasionally did these very symbolic things as well. They also had art, so it's not necessarily a question of cognition. It's a question of persistence. Research from both the fields of genetics and anthropology makes a strong case that at the population level, the presence of older people may be beneficial for making our communities wiser. Then there is, of course, the question of wisdom, context, and culture. While a biological model of wisdom would suggest consistency across human behavior, in the real world, we see certain inconsistencies in the way wisdom is framed at different points in history and in different cultures. Much like the process of evolution, which is grounded in biology but interacts with culture, wisdom too appears grounded in biological processes, which then interact with different cultural environments. Such interaction results in different manifestations of wisdom having both a common core and a culturally dependent flavour. Within a given culture, recent work by Igor Grossman has highlighted the power of the situation, with an individual's facility for wise reasoning varying considerably in different scenarios. 
This then begs the question, in which type of scenarios are we most likely to reason wisely? Here's Howard Nussbaum again. Language is fundamental to what it means to be human, and as such, I think it's critical in wisdom. So we see examples like Igor Grossman's self-distancing through the use of language. When you talk in the first person versus in the distant third person, you move away from a problem conceptually. It makes it easier to solve that problem if it's a social problem. If you work in a foreign language, for example, it distances you from the meaning. This is work by Boaz Kesar and Albert Costa. It uh, distances you from that problem again. And so that notion of being able to step back, a kind of self-regulation, language can serve that role. This work suggests that gaining distance from a problem can lead to wiser reasoning, and this is more easily done in the presence of others. It seems that decisions taken in solitude are not likely to be our wisest. The fields of psychology and philosophy both bring interesting perspectives to bear on the daunting question of the meaning of life. Here's moral philosopher and paper co-author Candice Vogler. I was mostly interested in empathy because the findings from this big research project that we're just bringing to a close is that basically self-centeredness is the biggest problem. It's what allows virtue, happiness, meaning to fall apart. Um, it's what produces circumstances in which you can wake up each morning and it just feels like what settles down over you is this vast to-do list and it's really hard to see what the point is of any of it and sometimes you just soldier through and sometimes you just think oh, no not again right um and we were thinking that having a self-transcendent attitude seeing your daily life as how you participate in a good that's bigger than you and yours um was what allowed these things to come together self-transcendence a shift from thinking only of the small self to a broader focus on the big self, beyond immediate self-concerns, has also been proposed by researchers as a central component of wisdom. Connecting to something larger than ourselves seems critical both in developing wisdom in life and to finding meaning in life itself. The idea that wisdom comes with age is deeply embedded in our popular culture. Characters such as Yoda from Star Wars and Gandalf from Lord of the Rings remind us of the wisdom of aged sages. But does the research support such a claim? A 2016 study from the University of California, San Diego, found that while, yes, physical health does decline as we age, mental well-being seemed to improve in a largely linear fashion from the age of 20 up into the 90s. In terms of mental health, older did indeed mean happier. Further research by psychologist Laura Carstensen also highlights that as people get older, the shortened time horizon they experience, the sense of having less time left, encourage them to focus on more emotionally meaningful goals, leading to improved psychological well-being. This work suggests that as we age, we get happier and focus on more meaningful goals, which may nudge us in the direction of wiser decision-making. Researchers have also investigated another popular belief, the belief that life's challenges and traumas lead inexorably to wisdom. Recent research by Nick Westrate at the University of Toronto suggests that it depends on how the trauma itself is processed. If the negative events are reflected on in an exploratory fashion, then this can lead to gains in wisdom. If, however, efforts are put primarily into feeling better and the events themselves are not explored for lessons, negative events are less reliably transformed into wisdom gains. One thing we know for sure, of course, is as we age, there are well-documented physical changes in the human brain. It's important to consider 
how these changes might impact on the facility for wisdom. From a peak under the neural hood, does the aging process result in a tuning of the engine or a rusting of the gears? Firstly, while the brain demonstrates undeniable neural degeneration and cognitive decline as it ages, that is only part of the aging story. The growth of new neurons in some brain regions, even into adulthood, highlights the neuroplasticity of the brain and the possibility for compensatory regeneration and growth. There are a number of other relevant changes that take place as the brain ages. Firstly, PASA, or posterior-anterior shift in aging, refers to a shift in processing from the back to the front of the brain, resulting in tasks being handled by more sophisticated brain regions. Next, Harold, or hemispheric asymmetry reduction in older adults, refers to tasks being more commonly shared across both halves of the brain. And finally, the positivity effect, which refers to the observation that while younger brains tend to respond equally to positive and negative stimuli, older brains tend to be more responsive to positive stimuli than negative stimuli. The understanding of the aging brain as travelling on a one-way street of neural degeneration has been drastically revised in light of such research. These changes lay down the pathways for a range of compensatory age-related improvements in cognition. Here's neurologist Bruce Miller again. I think more and more we realize the brain is plastic. I think there will be interventions once uh, we recognize the problem. I think the problem in neuroscience is this has never been considered part of what we should study. Uh, neuroscience was thought to think about movement or vision or sensation or uh, olfaction and these, uh, or possibly memory, but never the way we behave. And of course, this is the most important set of questions that needs to be addressed. The field of health and medicine is full of great uncertainty. Yet important decisions must be taken by doctors and patients on a daily basis. Here's Dilip Jesti again. Medicine is not a perfect science. When a patient presents with certain symptoms and the physician thinks about the diagnosis, often he or she has to consider several different entities in the differential diagnosis. And then think about what may be the most likely one for this patient at this time. And that could change over a period of time and that would certainly be different across different patients. For the patient, there are different ways of seeking the treatment, as well as following the treatment. And those ways would vary with time. Again, obviously, they would vary with different patients. So in other words, medicine involves a lot of uncertainties. And part of wisdom is accepting the uncertainties and yet being decisive when you need to be. As such, Medicine is a field which is positioned to benefit considerably from new research in the field of wisdom science. Doctors are asking for support in how to take better decisions, to be better able to step outside the guidelines when the guidelines don't apply. Medical practitioners have also started to give more consideration to the emotional aspects of a patient's experience. While physicians need, of course, to maintain a certain emotional distance from their patients in order to provide the most effective care, Compassion should be a central component of medical training rather than its inevitable casualty. Here's Dilip Jesti again. I believe that the empathy and compassion are essential for wisdom. A sociopath or antisocial person can meet other criteria for wisdom, such as emotional regulation, um, decisiveness, acceptance of uncertainty, self-reflection. But that person will never be considered wise because he or she is antisocial. Some notable examples of wisdom-based medical training are already up and running. 
the Phrenesis Project, for example, at the University of Virginia, was launched in 2014 with the aim of fostering wisdom in medical students and counteracting the negative impacts of the sometimes cynical hidden curriculum. So, while this research, across a whole range of academic disciplines, is very encouraging, what practical changes can we make in the real world? How might we actually make the world a wiser place? Firstly, while not a straightforward task, the opportunity of introducing wisdom and compassion training into education and the professions needs to be taken seriously. Here's Dan Blazer again. Uh, the first step might be just finding ways to introduce the concept into the curriculum. I think one thing we're recognizing uh, is that uh, through certain practices, uh, and again, I will speak from the perspective of medicine, we may be training these characteristics out of our professionals as opposed to actually encouraging them. So maybe one of the first steps we can take is, is look at a more humane, more sensitive, uh, more uh, socially integrative approach to being professionals uh, and helping people uh, than we've done before, and that may be a first step in teaching with them. Beyond the education system, wisdom science needs to be applied to the very structure of our society's institutions themselves. Here's Howard Nussbaum again. I think that we need to build wisdom into our institutions in different ways. So, for example, we need to build it into education because teachers need to be wiser, but we need to educate students about wisdom so that perhaps they can make use of the tools of wisdom. We need to educate our professionals in wisdom in certain kinds of ways so that we avoid burnout, so that we improve decision-making, that we improve policies. Institutions themselves can essentially be wise using approaches like nudge policy to help the constituents of an institution become wiser in their own actions, even if they're not thinking about it as wisdom. And that institutions themselves can be wise when no particular individual in the institution is wise through sort of the aggregation of collective intelligence. Such changes in education, professional training and institutional structure could go some way in transforming our society from one that values material wealth to one that values wisdom. I think that one of the big issues still remains education about wisdom. Society does not understand and appreciate wisdom totally. There's still a kind of skepticism about it as kind of mythical and mystical. There's a kind of notion that uh, rationality and intelligence trump other kinds of uh, cognitive and social attributes. Understanding the importance of wisdom to society, I think, is the immediate uh, challenge for us to just let people know about wisdom is not a, a kind of crazy notion. It's not a mythical notion. It's, it's about humans and making uh, humanity better. The role of technology in our lives is not straightforward. It, of course, brings risks and opportunities. As physicist Stephen Hawking warned, our future is a race between the growing power of our technology and the wisdom with which we use it. Let's make sure wisdom wins. First, some relevant threats. The World Health Organization recently classified gaming disorder as a mental health condition, and the National Health Service in Britain opened its first Centre for Internet Disorders. These are clear causes for concern. In terms of positives, technology seems to offer a number of tangible new benevolent possibilities. Unprecedented amounts of medical data can now be collected through wearable tech. These vast data mines can be analysed using artificial intelligence and machine learning, potentially revealing unforeseen medical insights. In terms of wisdom specifically, this data may even be able to provide personal wisdom profiles for individuals, guiding them towards wiser behaviour. Here's Dilip Jesti again. The best way to study a characteristic like wisdom in people would be to videotape them 24-7 for months. 
and then examine that behavior to find out how often they had emotional regulation, how often they were compassionate, how often they were decisive or indecisive. Obviously, 24-7 video recording, it's like the Truman Show, the movie, that's impractical, uh, illegal, and unethical. But there are new ways now of technology that are developing in which this can be done unobtrusively with the person's consent. And then with machine learning and artificial intelligence, we would be able to look at that behavior and categorize that as wise or unwise in specific domain, such as saying that the person had good emotional regulation 75% of the time, or the person was compassionate 50% of the time. So I really think the technology, it'll take some time, but technology is eventually going to help us major wisdom. And by the same token, it can also be used to enhance wisdom. As Jesty suggests, there is also the hope that technology will be able to go beyond just monitoring our behavior, even to perhaps nudging it in a wiser direction. Here's Howard Nussbaum again. Technology can also help the individual in terms of, you know, how they feel, changing aspects of mood, changing the way in which you approach a problem. So from the individual all the way up to society, technology can penetrate in very positive ways for helping wisdom. Another practical recommendation highlighted in the paper is the introduction of a country-level wisdom index. In 1972, the nation of Bhutan, frustrated by the limited scope of standard country-level metrics, introduced the Gross National Happiness Index. Through the use of this framework to guide policy decisions, they sought to shift the focus from material wealth to happiness. Might a similar approach work for encouraging a national focus on wisdom? Development of such an index would of course be challenging, but such a tool would be invaluable in fostering debate and increasing focus around wisdom in societies worldwide. Recent scientific research across a broad range of fields suggests that the science of practical wisdom is not a fuzzy construct, but rather an empirically based field that is ripe for rapid growth. The accumulation of scientific knowledge over the last 200 years has led some to refer to the modern period as the information age. It is necessary for the society to move beyond mere information and enter a new age of wisdom. To read the full version of the paper, The New Science of Practical Wisdom, head to the spring 2019 issue of Perspectives in Biology and Medicine, produced by John Hopkins University Press. For further information and to learn more about the new science of practical wisdom, visit the University of California, San Diego's Center for Healthy Aging, the University of Chicago's Center for Practical Wisdom, and evidencebasedwisdom.com. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.